coming up on Philosophy Talk. What have the Romans ever done for us? Classic liberalism says we have the right to self-government because we're born free, equal, and capable of rationality. How did a belief like that lead to colonialism? I'll grant you the aqueduct, the sanitation, the two things the Romans have done, and the roads. Well, yeah, obviously not roads. I mean, the roads go without saying, don't they? Liberalism claims to be pro-freedom. So how did it end up being used to justify empire? How could a pro-freedom philosophy end up taking freedom away from people around the world? Well, apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct, and the roads, irrigation, medicine, education. Yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. And the wine. Is liberalism just misunderstood? Or were its moral flaws built in from the beginning? I am a kind of tortured liberal. Our guest is Uday Singh Mehta, author of Liberalism and Empire. The tortured liberal does things with humility. Liberty and justice for who? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Thank you for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk. Did you know that we've got a library of more than 500 other episodes over at our website? Yeah, philosophytalk.org. We question everything. Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show. Are freedom and equality all we need? Or do liberal ideals just end up supporting oppression? How can we make sure that justice is for everybody? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today's episode is generously sponsored by the Stanford Global Studies Program. And we're asking, liberty and justice for who? Liberty and justice are for everyone, right, Ray? I mean, we're all capable of rationality, and we all deserve to be free and equal. Oh, yeah. Interesting to hear that coming from an Englishman, Josh. Didn't your country run an oppressive colonial empire for centuries? You're a one to talk. I mean, your precious United States was founded on colonialism, manifest destiny, slavery. Yeah, okay. You know, you're right. But you Brits are the ones who invented the whole ideology of liberalism. I mean, you had John Locke and John Stuart Mill telling people that everyone was free and equal, and then just using those ideas to steal other people's land and enslave them. What do you mean, Ray? You think a bunch of philosophers invaded India? Well, sort of, yeah. I mean, they didn't march in with muskets, but, you know, John Locke did have stock in the Royal Africa Company, which was involved in the slave trade, and and John Stuart Mill worked for the British East India Company, which stole something like $45 trillion worth of stuff from India. Look, I, I mean, working for those companies was pretty awful. I won't defend that. All I want to say is that, you know, Locke and Mill still had some interesting ideas. I mean, weren't they right to say that freedom and equality are important? Well, no, I think their ideas were exactly what enabled England to build this huge empire and then pretend that everything they were doing was okay. I I don't get it, Ray. I mean, those classical liberals, people like Locke and Mill, they, they said everyone's capable of rationality. And, and, and like as a consequence, they should be allowed to govern themselves. So, so how can that possibly be used as a justification for taking away people's autonomy and replacing it with British rule? Well, yeah, you know, they thought everybody was capable of rationality in theory, but only some people they thought were actually rational. Oh, if you were English, then then you counted as capable of self-governance. But if you were born and raised in Ireland or India or Africa, well, then they thought you kind of had to be babysat by somebody more responsible. Well, that is clearly a ridiculous belief on their part, but surely it's not a problem with the 
concept of rationality. I mean, they just failed to recognize rationality in other people because they couldn't see past things like differences in language and customs. They, they saw people wearing different clothes and they foolishly concluded that those people weren't civilized. So that's obviously a huge and, and dramatically problematic error. But it's not a problem for liberalism. I mean, if they'd been proper liberals, they would have opposed that kind of bigotry. Well, well, Josh, they were liberals. They were like the the, the earliest liberals, and they, they didn't oppose that kind of close-minded bigotry. So liberalism as an ideology just doesn't work. It just ends up being cover for theft and exploitation. I don't know, Ray. I, I, any ideology can be used as a cover for theft and exploitation. Look, look at the United States. You, you all didn't appeal to liberalism. You said God wanted you to conquer the entire continent. And, and, and you know, when the Persians, the Persians are running around conquering all their neighbors, I don't think they were quoting John Locke. Uh, you have to face facts. Even if liberalism isn't worse than other ideologies, it's still useless. It doesn't matter if it could theoretically work in some ideal world. It could never work in reality. Never? I mean, look at us today. I mean, we're, don't get me wrong, we're not doing perfectly by any means, but we're at least doing better. I mean, Britain doesn't have an empire anymore, for one thing, and, and a lot of Western social institutions including the good ones, are grounded on liberal principles, principles of self-governance. Ooh, a lot of Western social institutions isn't that nice for the West. What about the rest of the world? <laughs> well, even outside the West, Ray, some democratic movements draw on liberal ideas. Why not give credit where it's due? Well, I still think liberalism has done more harm than good, and I, I bet our guest is going to back me up. It's Uday Singh Mehta from the City University of New York, author of Liberalism and Empire. I don't know. I think he may back me up. Ideals of equality and rationality have sometimes had great effects, like the Haitian Revolution, which has been described as the largest and most successful revolt led by slaves in the Western Hemisphere. So we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to look into that uprising for liberty, equality, and fraternity for all. She files this report. He knew French, British, and Spanish imperialists for the insatiable gangsters that they were. That passage is from The Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James. It's an account of the 1791 Haitian Revolution. It's a very popular book on the British left that many read, knowing nothing about Haiti, but having an interest in radical politics and in Atlantic history. Charles Forsdick, now a professor of French at the University of Liverpool, says a long time ago, before he even got into studying France in earnest, he read that book. It tells the story of former slave and military leader Toussaint Louverture. He was born in the French Caribbean colony called San Domingo, now Haiti. He led thousands of former slaves into battle against French, Spanish, and English forces. There is no oath too sacred for them to break. No crime, deception, treachery, cruelty, destruction of human life and property, which they would not commit against those who could not defend themselves. Forstick is co-author of the book Toussaint Louverture, a black Jacobin in the age of revolutions. Earlier in his career studying French history, Forstick kept noticing there wasn't much acknowledgement of the Haitian Revolution. 150 years before the major wave of decolonization following the Second World War, because of its prematurity, it was systematically silenced and disavowed in the Atlantic world of the 19th century because of the, its potentially incendiary messages. The Haitian revolutionary said if there is to be liberty, it must be for all people, a message different from liberal thinkers elsewhere. 
he didn't see freedom as a, as a kind of gift from above. You know, under Toussaint's leadership, it had to be won by the enslaved masses themselves from below. That's Christian Hawksberg, professor of history and politics at the University of Brighton. He co-wrote that book on Toussaint with Charles Borsdick. But let's back up for a moment. I've dropped a stitch. Cursed aristocrats. So former slaves in Haiti revolted and battled French slave owners just a few years after France's own revolution against the absolute power of the king. I'm very much afraid, my good tutor, that you have taught my nephew to take the new philosophy of equality seriously. Now, I enjoy Monsieur Voltaire and these other modern philosophers, but I, I take them lightly, and merely as an exercise for the mind. Most of our lands are stolen. I intend to see them return to the peasants to whom they rightfully belong. Really? The Spanish, French, and English all wanted control of Haiti. Toussaint Louverture and his army sided with Spain. Then he switched allegiance to the French when the revolutionary government first outlawed slavery in 1794. It was under the leadership of the Jacobins' most radical, liberal, sort of bourgeois wing of the French Revolution under Robespierre. And Toussaint realized that actually this was a government that was actually quite sincere about its commitment to the Enlightenment ideas of liberty, equality, fraternity. But then Toussaint Louverture's trust in France cost him. After the rise of Napoleon, he was tricked, captured by the French, and died in prison. So he never actually became the leader who actually saw the ultimate victory of the Haitian Revolution. That fell to his uh, one of his lieutenants, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who actually ultimately led the Haitian Revolution to victory in 1804 after a bloody war of independence. In order to secure that independence, French slaveholders and their descendants demanded that Haiti pay the equivalent of between 20 and 30 billion in today's dollars. Even President Thomas Jefferson made sure to isolate the country politically and economically. Again, Charles Forsdick. That's why the story of Haiti as a political force, it's very much blunted, um, silenced, disavowed. But the success of the Haitian Revolution also became a source of inspiration for people resisting enslavement and racism, from the Civil War in the U.S. to the anti-colonial movements of the 50s and 60s. And crucially, that legacy of the Haitian Revolution um, was very apparent in summer um, 2020, um, when Louverture became recognized as, as one of the precursors of the Black Lives Matter movement. And in Haiti and elsewhere, the struggle continues to deliver the universal emancipation that the revolution promised. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Thanks for that great report, Holly. I'm Josh Landy. With me is my Stanford colleague, Ray Briggs. And today we're thinking about justice and the liberal tradition. We're joined now by Uday Singh Mehta. He's professor of political science at the City University of New York and author of Liberalism and Empire, a study in 19th century British liberal thought. Uday, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thank you. Thank you. Uday, you've written a lot about freedom and rationality. What events in your own life first got you interested in those ideas? You know, so I, uh, I grew up in India and China and Britain. I studied in these places. Uh, you know, I went to Catholic school in China uh, and then to a boarding school in, in India. And then I went to a boarding school in Britain. And then I did my 
college and PhD in America. So I had exposure to these various parts of the world. Um, and all of these places had different cultures, uh, different ways of operating. And that's, I think, what got me interested in liberalism. That sounds like a really kind of broadening experience. So, Uday, some critics say that liberalism was responsible for the bad actions of the British Empire in places like India. Can you tell us what some of those actions were? Yes. Uh, so they, for instance, uh, didn't give Indians the right to vote till the late 19th century. Um, they were cruel to the Indians. They took away their land. They uh, created all sorts of uh, nasty institutions. Uh, they got rid of uh, institutions that, through which Indians had historically got their identity. Uh, and some of these institutions were, by present standards, very good. You know, they got rid of sati, uh, this uh, practice of widows self-immolating themselves in the funeral pyre of their husbands. So it's not that they did only bad. Uh, they did a lot of good things too. And uh, so, I, you know, I, I am, I should say at the outset, I am a kind of tortured liberal, uh, <laughs> even though I'm a critic of liberalism. At least that's what I think I am. Right. So the British in India did like some good things, but there was also this like cruelty and refusal to just let people make their own decisions. How when like all of these English liberals had this ideology that people should be free, how how does that fit with treating others this way? You know, at the outset, I should say uh, there are varieties of liberalism. Uh, so in my head, there are uh, there's political liberalism There's associated with Locke, with Mill, with um, Montesquieu uh, in the French tradition. But there's another kind of liberalism too. Um, there's economic liberalism, you know, commonly associated with, you know, Adam Smith, Milton Friedman, uh, Frederick Hayek. Uh, and, and this second kind of liberalism is associated with free trade, lowering taxes, etc. Now, there's a third kind of liberalism, uh, the kind of liberalism I like. And that is associated in my head uh, with, you know, people like Henry Adams, uh, Burke, uh, Michael Oakeshott. Uh, and what this kind of liberalism emphasized uh, was a kind of education, uh, becoming self-conscious. Uh, it didn't invoke uh, language of rights. Uh, as a general matter, uh, it was not concerned with universalizing uh, its ideas. Uh, so th there, in my head, there are these three, broadly three liberalisms, and it's the first one that I think... Uh, was most oppressive uh, because it was the first one uh, in which uh, you had to be rational to be free. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're thinking about liberalism and justice with Uday Singh Mehta from the City University of New York. Is 18th century liberalism responsible for colonialism? How did freedom-loving philosophers like Locke and Mill get tangled up in the slave trade? Can their political philosophy be salvaged, or does it belong in the dustbin of history? Liberty in theory, empire in practice, along with your comments and questions when Philosophy Talk continues. Now you see the 
Do liberal ideas help us stand up for our rights, or do they just keep us sitting down? I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs, and we're thinking about liberty and justice with Uday Singh Mehta from the City University of New York, author of Liberalism and Empire. Today's episode is generously sponsored by the Global Studies Program at Stanford University. And you can join Uday and other panelists for a Global Dialogue series conversation about liberalism and its global trajectories on Friday, October 28th at 12 p.m. Pacific. More information about this online event at the Global Studies website, sgs.stanford.edu. So, Uday, you were saying that there's a political kind of liberalism and that that enabled uh, the English to, to sort of oppress other people around the world because of its focus on rationality. Can you say more about how that worked? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, in Locke and in Mill, uh, I think the liberalism in those people is governed by a particular syllogism, which is you have to be rational to be free. Uh, that's Locke's formulation. Uh, in Mill's formulation, uh, you have to be educated in a particular way uh, to exercise liberty. Uh, and I think in Locke's formulation, if you ask the question, what do you mean by r rational? The answer you get is uh, basically you have to have certain conventions. You know, you have to have... Uh, things like you, you have to have norms. You have to know who to say hello to, who, who to stand in front of, uh, and who to bow towards. Um, so if you have those ideas in a different society, you couldn't be rational. Uh, <laughs> and so you'd have to be educated into those norms. So there was a, that, that's the kind of paternalism, right, that, that uh, these folks uh, encountered cultures different from theirs didn't make the effort to understand or couldn't understand and just concluded they were not up to scratch. They, you know, they're, they're clearly not ready yet for the full use of rationality and therefore for self-governance. We're going to help them. We are so yes. wise. We will teach yes. them the correct ways. So that yes. seems like it's one source of the problem. What about... Yeah. Um, what about universalism, that the way in which uh, some of these thinkers seemed to abstract away from specifics of space and time and had these, you know, big, uh, big canvases where they, they seem to think that everything sort of operates the same way. Do you think that that was part of the problem, too? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, liberalism from the outset uh, was a kind of export commodity uh, <laughs> because it it had these ideas, these abstract ideas, uh, which they took uh, to be facts. They were they thought of these abstract ideas like freedom, equality, fraternity uh, to identify uh, liberalism in terms of the classic adages of the French Revolution, uh, and they thought they, these things were exportable. They were true uh, wherever you went. Um, uh, but they also thought in concrete form, you had to be taught uh, into them. I mean, uh, John Stuart Mill uh, uh, in his book on liberty says, those who are not ready for liberty have to be taken by leading strings. So those are the strings that a child is taught to walk with. Uh, 
And that's his view of entire civilizations, of entire cultures. So that that's kind of a horrible way to view entire other cultures. But I'm yeah. kind of wondering, like, there, there is some kind of appeal to the idea that you need to be rational in order to be self-governing. Like, we don't let kids, like you, you just mentioned yeah. children, we don't let children govern themselves. And like, yes. if you think that, like, nobody but an English gentleman is an adult, that's that's definitely a mistake about who is rational and who is a child. Yeah. But is that really, is that really a problem with, like, the idea of rationality? Or is that just a, a mistake about who is rational? I think it's both. I think it's both. Um, I mean, there are different conceptions of rationality. Uh, so, you know, where I come from, um, uh, you know, if you don't do namaste to somebody, you're being rude. Uh, and some people might say that's a fault of rationality. Now, the same uh, gesture in England would not be thought of as respectful. Uh, in contrast, uh, uh, you know, in, in England, you shake people's hand. Um, so there is a, the culture is constitutive of rationality. But couldn't you back up and say something more general, like each culture has its own norms of politeness. It's mm -hmm. rational to be polite and to adopt mm -hmm. the norms of whatever culture you're in currently. So couldn't mm -hmm. you say, well, look, that seems like a pretty harmless universal claim. You know, wherever you go, try to learn the local norms and, and, and be polite within those norms. And, and couldn't there be other harmless and maybe even good universals like equality, justice, you know, freedom, things like that? So to what extent are, are, are universals, even a universal idea of rationality, is that, is that necessarily a problem if I say, you know, my universal idea of rationality involves learning the local customs and, and, and abiding by them? It would be uh, a problem if you did not know that other cultures have their own way of being rational. Yeah. So it seems like a, a lot of the, the problem with like British liberal ideals interacting with the rest of the world is that people are just not paying enough attention to like all of the stuff that gives rationality like its substance. Like you have to know something about norms of politeness and how they work and why yours aren't the only ones. But yes, it, seems, yes. it seems like you think that some philosophers did better at this than others. Why? Because I think they took circumstances seriously. They were not as abstract. Yeah, and one of I, I find it fascinating that one of your heroes in this regard is Edmund Burke, right? You you yes. talk about Edmund Burke. You know, he has this lovely line about how the how how India they, in India they framed their laws and institutions prior to our insect origins of yesterday. We are this yeah. pathetic newcomer compared to this you know venerable uh, tradition. And, and I think to some of our listeners, this might come as a surprise that you know he is he's a conservative. He's a self-professed conservative. Some people would would sort of think about aligning those kind of sentiments. Uh, with non-conservatives. So, so tell us more about how uh, Burke's conservatism goes along with his, uh, his attitudes towards uh, empire, how he was a, a staunch opponent of empire. Yeah, he was a staunch opponent of empire uh, in India, in Ireland, in America. And, and I think why he was a staunch opponent was because A, his, he didn't have these abstract principles. He he valued circumstances. There's a famous 
uh, line uh, in the introduction to his famous book, Reflections on the French Revolution, where he says, uh, for some people, circumstances amount to nothing when, in fact, they are what give principles their particular hue and color. So he took uh, circumstances very seriously. Similarly, in his uh, prosecution of Warren Hastings, who was a governor general of India, he said, you know, things like, uh, uh, this man uh, is insensitive to the norms of this other country. Uh, and uh, that's why uh, he prosecutes them, or that's why he, he deserves to be prosecuted. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about liberty and justice with Uday Mehta from the City University of New York. And Uday, we have uh, an email from Harold on our website. So Harold asks, if liberty and justice is for all, then how can liberalism square that demand from someone who would just as soon advocate and pursue overthrow of a government? I would ask Harold, uh, who, who is he talking about? Uh, uh, is he talking about the Americans? Uh, I mean, the Americans uh, uh, overthrew, uh, let's say, uh, the government in Afghanistan. Uh, and I think what they did there was they said, um, uh, these people are not ready to govern themselves. Uh, so they, they kind of followed the, the liberal uh, playbook, uh, you know, when liberals go into other places, typically the justification for that is these people require education to become Democrats, to represent themselves. And until such time, we can treat them like ch children. So that's a case of going in somewhere else and overthrowing a government. But what about cases of overthrowing government uh, in one's own backyard? Obviously, you know, I, I'm, I, I confess to being a Brit myself. The Americans threw us out. Uh, and of course, in, in Britain, there were, you know, John Locke's uh, second treatise of governments often understood as a justification, whether post hoc or in advance of the, the glorious revolution at the end of the 17th century. You know, Locke advocates for a right uh, a, a right of rebellion, right? So you, uh, yeah. under certain circumstances, if the if the state's violating the freedom of citizens, you've got a right to revolution. So, isn't aren't there some circumstances where liberals would say, you know what, if 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 government is really going too far, yeah, you yeah. do get, you know, you uh, colonists now Americans, you get to throw out the queen. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, I think you're talking about the last chapter of. Uh, uh, the second treatise, yes. where he says uh, uh, something to the effect, the, the, the passage that you have in mind, uh, where people have the right to uh, revolt. Uh, and there he says, if they have, if they're being oppressed, they can either look to heaven or they can do make revolution. Um, so this idea of looking to heaven um, that's, I think, what anchors his right to revolution. So, wait, uh, heaven, is that like the Christian God? W what is the heaven at the end of the Second Treatise? So, I, I think uh, the 
right to rebel, revolt, is linked to some kind of God figure. So it's, it's, it's not uh, individuals per se. They have to reach a point when they look for their justification in some kind of divine sanction. I'm totally fascinated by Locke. I've got to tell you, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm delighted we have you here to talk to him about, because I can't figure out where he lands. He's a totally fascinating 17th century figure. He he says that, you know, nations have the right to rebel against a, 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 a tyrannical leader. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, he also owns some stock in the Royal African Company. And, uh, but then he, then he sold his stock in the Royal African Company. And, you know, he... he, he he was involved in uh, in writing the Constitution of of Carolina, where which seemed to yeah. support slavery. But then he was also involved in in writing law reform in Virginia that seemed to kind of go against slavery. Is he conflicted? Does he change his mind? What should we say about John Locke? I uh, all the three examples you give his talks in the African Company, his being uh, the author of the Constitution in Carolina. Uh, which, after all, was a slave-owning state, and uh, uh, his uh, relationship to Virginia, which had abolished slavery. Uh, I think it had abolished slavery. Um, I think uh, these are the sort of things uh, that show that Locke himself was a tortured liberal. Hmm. Uh, (laughs) Just like you. And... (laughs) Uh, yeah, like me. Uh, uh, my first book was on Locke. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think most liberals are tortured. Except people like those who emphasize uh, the point of liberalism is to know yourself, uh, to have self-consciousness. I mean, the words that are important in that version of liberalism are things like education, uh, but not in the sense that Locke and Mill meant it, not in the sense that you have to be made ready for education because you're not born with rationality. For somebody like Oakeshott or Burke, for that matter, education is what is the inheritance of every human being. So I'm so curious to hear more about sort of education and also its its role in resisting tyranny. Like what what is the link there for, for Burke and Oakeshott? I mean, Burke and Oakeshott just are not imperialists. So famously, Burke says, you know, we Brits have no business being in America. Uh, just like he says that uh, of India. He says, we have no business being in India. Why? Well, because they have their own society. Yeah, so so actually this maybe brings us to a question from Donald in the Bay Area. So Donald uh, has asked if you could say something about the links between liberalism and capitalism, including some of the fundamental tensions between them, and also how racism fits into that. So a small question from Donald. <laughs> uh I think uh, the link is the following. Um, as I said, in my head, um, there are th- broadly three kinds of liberalism. There's the political liberalism of people like Mill and uh, Madison. Uh, 
that's the one that talks about rights, abstract universal rights, freedom, liberty, and equality, or freedom, equality, and fraternity. Then there is this liberalism of uh, free trade, uh, lowering taxes, and that's associated, uh, first of all, with Adam Smith, and you know it has its successors and people like Hayek and Milton Friedman. Uh, and that second group of liberals is what produces capitalism, even though uh, Locke uh, has notions of private property. Uh, uh, so there, the link between capitalism and free trade, uh, you can only have free trade if you have capitalism. I mean, you, you, you had barter before that, but free trade uh, requires uh, some version of uh, uh, private property, uh, or if not private property, national property. So there is a kind of sense in which uh, free trade presupposes uh, two things. Uh, that trade is between nations, uh, and companies like the East India Company are versions of the nation, uh, uh, and that itself requires, uh, you know, what companies have is shareholders, uh, and you know th these are investments. Uh, so that's that's the link, you know. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're asking about liberty and justice with Uday Singh Mehta, author of Liberalism and Empire. Is liberalism doomed or can it be salvaged? Is there a better political ideology? What will it take to bring about global justice? Finding a theory that works, plus commentary from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher, when Philosophy Talk continues. It's not too late to make a new world, but how do we do it? I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. Our guest is Uday Singh Mehta from the City University of New York, and we're thinking about justice and the liberal tradition. Today's episode is generously sponsored by the Stanford Global Studies Program. So Uday, if you had to pick a political ideology that, that stands the best chance of bringing about global justice, what would that be? I think it would be something that is humble, that doesn't uh, think in terms of power, that doesn't think in terms of uh, nations, uh, that thinks, uh, whatever it thinks, it does so with humility. And do you think there's, there, there's there sources of this in the thinkers you look at, you know, Burke and John Locke, John Stuart Mill. I mean, there's even older uh, writers like Michel de Montaigne, you know, who famously said in The Cannibals, we surpass them in every kind of barbarity. And Bartolome de las Casas, who said, look, we've really got to abolish the slave trade, also in the 16th century. And, and one of my favorites, uh, you know, maybe because he's French, Denis Diderot, who, like Montaigne, said, look, y you want to think about uncivilized people? Look at the Europeans. Uh, <laughs> we're the uncivilized people. <laughs> and was also a cultural pluralist. Uh, do, can we draw today on any of these folks from the, the 16th century, the 17th, the 18th century? Yes, I can. Uh, I think we can. Uh, uh, the, the, the very people you mentioned, uh, Diderot, um, 
Montaigne. Um, I mean, the other person I haven't mentioned is another Frenchman, uh, Tocqueville. Mm. Um, uh, uh, I mean, <laughs> Tocqueville is a complicated thinker. Uh, uh, he admired the Americans uh, a lot, uh, but then he, uh, when it came to Algeria, uh, he believed uh, that uh, the French should be there. In fact, he, in his letters um, to uh, Mill, uh, he said, uh, imperialism is the last way for the Europeans to recover glory. Uh, so uh, he was a complicated figure. Um, um, and, you know, I, I, I like to think of him, uh, since I, I, I love Tocqueville, uh, as another tortured liberal uh, Except I'm I'm tortured in a different way. Uh, yeah, so I want to I want to hear like more directly about uh, being a tortured liberal. How does it differ from being a regular liberal, and and should we be that instead? Yeah, uh, I think the the difference between a tortured liberal and the regular uh, liberal, like John Stuart Mill, is that the tortured liberal uh, does things with humility. He doesn't think or she doesn't think uh, that power is the solution to everything because uh, he or she uh, takes the other person's uh, context seriously. And yet the liberal part is uh, they do believe in things like justice. And so, so you know, it's not that uh, I have some other notion of justice and equality. It's that I would apply it in a different way. I would be more patient. I would be uh, more humble. Uh, I would acknowledge di people's differences of culture. It's so interesting because you would think that John Stuart Mill would be all over that. I mean, his book on liberty is all about how fantastic it is, not just for the individual, but for culture that everyone gets to express their uniqueness and and live, you know, live an experimental kind of life. There should be let a thousand flowers bloom. Why was he yeah. so why was he so different when it came to other cultures? I mean, he was great at thinking about diversity within uh, Britain. Yeah. But so what, what was the block there? You know, uh, I'm sure you know this, that um, uh, the book on liberty is dedicated uh, to uh, his partner, his who became his wife, uh, uh, Harriet Taylor, and uh, the dedication is uh, something like uh, to Harriet Taylor, who was at least in part the author of this book and who was uh, in most ways my superior. So I mean that he's a very very early feminist, uh, uh, but you know in the same book. Uh, Towards the end, in On Liberty, he says things like, uh, the East has no history. Uh, and what he means by that is, uh, it is defined by its conventions. Uh, and those conventions are what politics replaces. I mean, just think about that comment. The East has no history. Uh, you know, that's an outrageous thing to say. Yeah, I, I noticed that we've been focusing a lot on European thinkers who are kind of largest in their tradition that like Josh and I and, and, and you to like at least a large extent are embedded in. But um, if we wanted to like look outside of the European canon 
for useful political ideas? Like, would do you have a few recommendations? You know, uh, I'm in the process of completing a book on Gandhi. Uh, and as I say uh, somewhere in the introduction, the reason I think of Gandhi is that because he is, I think, a successor to Burke. Right. Uh, that I, I had not heard that description of Gandhi before. Most people have not. And uh, let me spell out what I think is the connection between Burke and Gandhi. Both are stridently opposed to revolution. Both think time matters. Both are committed to patience. Uh, both take culture seriously. Uh you know, I can give specific examples. Like, you know, in Gandhi's uh, most famous book uh, called Hind Swaraj, um, the, the figure of Gandhi has an interlocutor um, who's, I think, called the editor. Uh, so th this interlocutor says um, things like uh, the, the British should be kicked out. And Gandhi's response is kicking out the British will just, re who would you replace them with? You would replace them with Indians, but these those Indians would behave like the British. And, and so Gandhi's objection is to a broader frame. It's modern civilization. It's a modern civilization that has given us the particular investment in, in our bodies, um, uh, in material well-being. Uh, and to get rid of that... Uh, you need, uh, of course, you need certain practices like spinning, silence, dietary practices. But more than anything else, you have to change the people's conception of themselves. That's totally fascinating. And that presumably takes time. And I, I, yeah. I, that's a, this is a fascinating connection between Gandhi and, and, and Burke. Totally fascinating. So what do, what do you think that they would say to somebody who says, look, I, I don't have the time. I'm impatient. Mm -hmm. Like we need, we can't wait. We can't wait 10 years, 20 years for 40 years for people. Right. Yeah. I'm going to die and the, and the human race might die the way that the climate is going now. <laughs> so what, what's the answer to that? So Gandhi would say, be patient and ultimately don't fear dying. Uh, that's what he felt about himself. You know, he said, uh, I look forward to death. And uh, I mean, I I, uh, I gave a lecture at some point um, when I was teaching at Amherst, uh, and it was uh, shortly following uh, the invasion of uh, Afghanistan uh, 20 years ago. And I said uh, what I uh, am saying now, we should have been patient. America should have been patient. And somebody in the audience said, uh, what do you think? We should have spent 10 years looking for uh, Osama bin Laden? And my response was, why not? <laughs> why not? If, if that is the price, you pay for not destroying a country. Mm. Take that risk. So I'm seeing the link with with education because I mean it sounds like uh, what you're describing as as like a better politics or a better way forward requires a lot of virtue, like a lot of patience, yeah. a lot of courage, a lot of ability to sort of suspend your ego. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Where where would you recommend looking to to build those virtues? Well, uh, uh, I would recommend uh, reading uh, two authors, uh, Michael Oakeshott uh, and Gandhi. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Michael Oakeshott's uh, emphasis on uh, learning, learning not for instrumental purposes, but, uh, uh, I mean, he's a big... Uh, advocate of poetry. Um, and then Gandhi for uh, his specific views on the cultivation of the self. Um, there are other thinkers I could think of. Um, um, I can't think of them now. If you had to put if you had to put Gandhi's advice into a single pithy sense, what would you what would you think he would he would tell us today? Be patient. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's very pithy. I like that. <laughs> On that note, Uday, uh, I, I wish that we could have all the patience and talk to you all day. Uh, but we've come to the end of our show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Josh and uh, Ray. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Our guest has been Uday Singh Mehta, professor of political science at the City University of New York and author of Liberalism and Empire, a study in 19th century British liberal thought. So, Ray, what are you thinking now? Well, I'm really glad that, that Uday is going to be back soon uh, at Stanford Global Studies uh, for an online event where our listeners can, can uh, check out uh, him in dialogue with uh, Jennifer Pitts and Duncan Bell, both of whom have really interesting and relevant recent books uh, that are related to today's conversation. So Jennifer Pitts has a book called A Turn to Empire. Uh, Duncan Bell has a book called Dream Worlds of Race, and our listeners might want to check them out and check out that conversation. And we'll give more information about that conversation in just a moment. And we'll put links to everything we mentioned today on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you can also become a subscriber and gain access to our library of more than 500 episodes. And as I mentioned, on Friday, October 28th at 12 p.m., you can join the Stanford Global Studies program for an online event in their Global Dialogue series, Liberalism and Its Global Trajectories, featuring today's guest, Uday Singh Mehta. More information at the Stanford Global Studies website, sgs.stanford.edu. Now a man so fast he has no equal, it's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian shows the passing of Queen Elizabeth was met with grief, with grumbling, and just oodles of media attention. Not to be a snide Yankee, but we like to pretend royals mean nothing to us. A pretense exposed by our bizarre attitude towards Meghan Markle. She's in the news almost daily for something or other, chiding her for not being more princessy when she had the chance. Like that was going to end well. She was doomed. Piers Morgan had it in for her. Everybody had it in for her except Oprah. You can hear the tongue clucking around the world. Now, you can be an American and a princess both, you know. Ivanka nails it. What's wrong with you? Well, clearly, Meghan wanted to be an influencer. She lives in Malibu. She has a podcast. Princesses can be influencers, true, but true princesses accept attention graciously. They don't go looking for it. So little empires are impacted, as the consultants say, by big empires, even as big empires like the USA are still impacted by the empires that spawned them. Why are we the United States of America, for instance, and not just America? Well, we kind of liked being colonies. We had our own little duchies on our own, out of the clutches of the East India Company. We dumped the king and moved on, but states' rights still separate and bind us together. As I write this, California and Florida are vying to be the most obnoxious state, and we love our little faux wars. All across the nation, we have regional loyalty. Miss Alabama's, Kings of the Road, Dukes of Hazard, and we have dynasties. The Adamses, the Kennedys, the Bushes, the Trumps. Little girls emulate the Disney princess templates. A bit of a controversy when told the live-action princess we called the Little Mermaid was going to be played by a young black woman. 
conservative men got all mad, probably because they remember the high school gridiron battles when the homecoming queen went to prom without them. We have memories on our bones of the queens of yore in myth and legend and opera and in actual history. Empire gave way to imperialism. Lusty bold marauders now had minions maraud for them. Originally, civilization wore its exploitation on its sleeves. Conquered peoples were just folded into the greater empire. Then imperialism gave way to colonialism. Slavery became a thing. You don't conquer, you incorporate. You can have slaves, but you have to purchase them. And while it's creepy to force humans to your will by fiat of empire, it's even creepier if you buy them on the open market. We're still haunted by this horrible sin. Post-colonialism is making us crazy. Half of us in a half-hearted Black Lives Matter kind of way. Then they have denying there's a problem. Well, no, the problem is everybody won't shut up about a problem that no longer exists. Sometimes I think these are just plot elements in an epic novel we never finished reading. And instead, we have all these authoritarian fantasies. Trump, for example, is a postmodern version of an enlightened despot. Not the kind of king who knew Greek and commissioned operas. Nope, this is the wild colonial cousin who says he's got royal blood, leading the charge against black mermaids. What kind of culture is that? What culture is being betrayed? Why are grown men thinking about the casting decisions of live-action cartoons? Is that what we do now? We exploit the world, we exploit ourselves, and we don't even get blood diamonds out of it. We're just a long, long string of increasingly crappy movies. So... Farewell to the queen on horseback with a sword and an army behind her. The queen having a lover executed without even a backwards look. Bequeathing estates on those who please her. Marrying cousins from other lands to ensure the dynasty will continue. There goes the final queen. And we look for echoes of glory as she walks slowly from the limo with her corgis and her sensible shoes. It's comforting. There weren't any major sea battles off the coast of Spain. No redcoats in the streets of Boston. Just an old lady clutching her purse as the two-bit leaders of the sectional free world and beyond stake their claims and then forget what they were talking about. It's sad, really. Clearly, we long for a strong man or a woman to bluster and lead us into the future. Alas, that ancient carnival is finally leaving town. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW, local public radio San Francisco Bay Area, and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University. Copyright 2022. Our executive producer is Ben Trefney. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Thanks also to Yichi Shi, Merle Kessler, and Angela Johnston. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the partners at our online community of thinkers. Support for this episode comes from the Stanford Global Studies Program. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you can become a subscriber and gain access to our library of more than 500 episodes. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. The Queen of England doesn't know her ABCs anymore. A, B, C, D, X, P, Q, X, Y, D. Hello. Thank <laughs> you.